Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you, team. Thank you so much for joining. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure, as always, to have you with me here in the Freedom Hut. If you want to call in, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Lines will be open here, or are open. So... Uh, a bunch of different topics to get to today. I, I don't feel the need to jump right in to the the biggest news story of the day because there's a lot of different news stories that I am going to want to get into with you. And uh, we will give you some updates on uh, Hurricane Irma aftermath. Uh, we will certainly talk about, well, on, on the, uh, well, we'll talk about North Korea and the U.N. Security Council sanctions on it in a uh, buck brief, a national security buck brief in, in our uh, two today. And uh, we'll have some guests joining to talk about Hillary Clinton's book tour, as well as the politics of ESPN and politics in general. Um, and in the final hour, I will have to give you my thoughts on an individual who has gone viral for a very amusing national TV debut. You will want to stick around for that. That is coming up in the uh, third hour of the show. Uh, but f- oh, and, and the Apple iPhone X, right? The iPhone X, which will cost nine hundred ninety nine dollars. I'm not a tech guy. I'm not going to pretend that I'm somebody who can shed a lot of light on Apple products. Nor am I someone who stands in line and gets all that excited about them. Although I, I use all these things, if someone took my iPhone away long enough, I think I'd go into a form of withdrawal. Um, but I will, but I will be uh, talking to you a bit about that. Uh, the 8s and the X—that's what's out. The eight, the 8s, and the X are are all coming out. So there's that. Uh, but first, politics. Let's talk about what's going on in the world of all things DC right now, because you've got a couple of threads coming together. Uh, for one, you have Hillary Clinton out there making the case openly during her what happened tour that there was russia collusion and that they tried to help trump and they did help trump and without providing any any further evidence from what we already know she's just out there saying this stuff she told usa today quote there certainly was communication and there certainly was an understanding of some sort Because there's no doubt in my mind Putin wanted me to lose and wanted Trump to win. And there's no doubt in my mind that there are a tangle of financial relationships between Trump and his operation with Russian money. And there's no doubt in my mind, she repeats it three times, that the Trump campaign and other associates have worked really hard to hide their connections with Russians. End quote. Uh, This is as irresponsible as I think you're going to see a major political figure or perhaps former political figure in this country get when it comes to her rhetoric. I mean, this is so far beyond uh, what would be expected of somebody who 
at least if you listen to the media, is a, a great example of a politician who does things the right way, who speaks about the issues the right way, who has integrity and well, I know Hillary integrity. You're like, <laughs> and I, I agree. I agree. I I walked into that one that uh, just hit me in the face like a two by four. Yes. Uh, Hillary and integrity do not go in the same sentence, but she's saying that the president is guilty of. Let's just, you know what the real charge is? Uh, it's Collusion isn't a crime unless you're colluding in a price-fixing scheme. There actually are statutes where you can collude and it's criminal, but it has to do with price-fixing, I think, and has nothing to do with a uh, international conspiracy to throw an election. But, you know, I just think that it would be better, it would be more honest if Hillary would say that she's accusing Trump of disloyalty to the country. But that feels strange for Democrats to say it in such a plain and straightforward fashion, because they usually hold up disloyalty, whether it's Chelsea Manning or uh, Edward Snowden or any number of people, as sometimes worthy of a claim. Right. So disloyalty would be too straightforward a description of what she's uh, accusing Trump of. And there's no she has no further evidence of this is. And I think it also goes to why so many are still befuddled in the media is how how is it possible that given the all out assault on Trump that we have been engaged in, that it hasn't derailed the administration yet, it hasn't really worked. And it's because we see people like Hillary Clinton out there every time Hillary opens her mouth. Hello. No, but every time Hillary is out there making a case about how. Donald Trump is is disloyal, treasonous, a bad guy, worked with the Russians to to steal the election, whatever, whatever it may be. It's a reminder that the same people who go on TV or get on the well, not as much on the radio, thankfully, but who go on TV or write for major newspapers or websites telling you that you never should have voted for uh, Trump, that it's an embarrassment, that you should have voted for Hillary because she's a much more mature, responsible option for this country. You just say to yourself, well, you're discrediting. You're discrediting everything else that you say after this is going to be discredited because if you're if you're hanging your hat on the thesis that Hillary is so much better than Donald Trump and that Hillary is such a great person and would have been so good for this country, a lot of people just don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it. Because there is a a blindness among so many on the left, not just to Hillary's imperfections, but to her deep, deep moral failings uh, and and also political and uh, ethical, ethical failings, too. So this, I think, is why right now you're seeing that the Democrats aren't really sure of what the assault on Trump needs to be, of, of how they're supposed to. They've tried so much. Right. Trump was a a treason and then Trump was a racist and now he's a white supremacist. And then he's but then he made this deal with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. He's talking about tax reform. He's saying that Republicans should work with Democrats to get this done. And there are just a lot of different pathways that Trump is opening up that don't fall in line with the narrative that the left has been saying, which is that Trump is this madman, this bar. He's like the, the Conan, the barbarian of politicians. He's just coming in and 
He wants to hear the lamentations of the women. I mean, you know, for those of you who know Conan the Barbarian, it's a famous line. Uh, my Conan impression needs some work. But nonetheless, this is what we're looking at right now. An administration that doesn't fit in to any of the predetermined narratives that were uh, offered or, or rather jammed down. They weren't really offered that have been slammed uh, in our faces time and time again since the very beginning. And we just see that they, they keep on being wrong or they keep on abandoning the initial series of allegations for another series of allegations. It's just anything to defame and destroy Trump. And it's not on the policy substance. I mean, I'll get to the Medicare for all push going on right now among Democrats, which is, look, it would be great. I think it's so fascinating. It would be a great thing if the if the country could afford to pay for great health insurance for everybody. And if there are a way to do this without destroying our uh, our capitalist system in the long run and enormous taxation, tremendous restraints on economic growth and truly I mean, we already have a confiscatory tax system that is not progressive, I should add, uh, not progressive in the way that it that it really would be if it were about redistributing from the rich, because it it really largely punishes those who are trying to become wealthy because it taxes earnings. Uh, but. I wish that we could have everyone having everyone getting free or not free, but ever having their health care paid for by the government. But I know that there's so many downsides. I also wish that I could go home and eat like four chocolate bars every day. And I'm not saying I've never done this and it wouldn't have any effect on my health, my well-being or my weight. But that's just not the case either. So Democrats haven't yet figured out what the message is going to be, because the we hate Trump stuff, which comes from Hillary, comes from others, that's not going to be sufficient. And I think you're now seeing a turn to, okay, fine. If it's going to be Medicare for all, then we might as well start pushing that right now. By the way, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders referred to Hillary Clinton's book as sad. Whether or not he's going to read Hillary Clinton's book, I am not sure, but I would think that uh, he's pretty well versed on what happened and i think it's pretty clear to all of america um i think it's sad that after hillary clinton ran one of the most negative campaigns in history and lost and the last chapter of her public life is going to be now defined by propping up book sales with false and reckless attacks uh and i think that that's a sad way for her to continue this work i think that's that's completely fair they are false and reckless attacks to say that the sitting president worked with a foreign power against the interests of the American people to cheat in an election is a a mind-blowing accusation. And this is from Hillary Clinton. This isn't even just from all the pretend journalists and the fake news who are saying that they are objective, they have no bias, they have no partisan affiliation. This is from someone who is, based on what we are told all the time, supposed to know better. This is from someone who's supposed to be better than that. But it's Hillary Clinton. She's not better than that. She fights as dirty as any person could ever hope to fight when it comes to politics. There's no question about it. Speaking about the political fight, there was some interesting, uh, there's some interesting back and forth today over the future of former FBI Director James Comey, who may have gotten himself into a bit of trouble, and there is talk of what that could mean 
even possible prosecution. That's not the president's role. That's the job of the Department of Justice and something they should certainly look at. Is that something you'd like to see? Uh, I, I'm not sure about that specifically, but I think uh, if there's ever a moment where we feel someone's broken the law, particularly if they're the head of the FBI, I think that's something that certainly should be looked at. Should Comey be prosecuted? That's uh, that's some pretty strong stuff. Uh, the political ramifications of this would be uh, in the oh wow side of things, but uh, I'm not saying it's uh, not saying it's impossible. It really all depends as to whether Comey was no the the stuff. Let me back up for a second. When they look at his conduct with regard to the Hillary email investigation and what he did by stepping out in front of Loretta Lynch, whose job it was as attorney general to make that statement. But but Comey thought it was better. He thought the optics, this is by his own admission, were better if he was the one that told the American people that there would be no charges against Hillary Clinton and that no reasonable prosecutor would do it. Uh, keep in mind, Comey wasn't even a prosecutor at all at the time. He was a really a, a head of an investigatory body, the FBI. But Comey released a memo or the contents of a memo to a journalist, did so willfully and knowingly. And then you get into whether there was anything that uh, that, that could be considered a criminal violation of statute. Right. Whether that's, in fact, the case. And if that is the case, you start to wonder, all right, if Comey can do that, if Hillary can do what she did, we really have established that there is a completely special set aside of laws for those who are politically uh, politically connected and in good favor with the Democrats. Um, if, If Comey is able to violate the law without any punishment whatsoever, now, you know, he he didn't give away the nuclear codes, right? I mean, this isn't uh, uh, this isn't the end of the world. I'm not pretending that this would be some huge case, but would a lower level FBI agent get punished? Would a lower level person in the government receive some form of uh, of, of real punishment for what they did after they left office? I I wonder. But the White House knows that this is not over in terms of where Comey and the Mueller investigation, all that's heading. They know that there's a whole other, I don't know if it's just a final act, but there are, there are tricks that they are going to pull going uh, into the future here. They hope that they can take down the administration or at least make life so difficult and so miserable for the administration that they are able to then take back the House and then, you know, you'll get to whether or not there'll be an impeachment. And I do think that there will be impeachment if the Democrats are able to achieve a majority in the House. They're, they don't need a majority in the Senate necessarily because they won't get removal from office, but just impeachment. And ask Bill Clinton, it was rough. I just I just thought it was so, so mean. They were being so mean to me with the impeachment and the whole Monica thing. And it was terrible. Uh the Clintons is it when you think about I know this is a, a departure from the news of the day for a second but uh when you when you think of the Democrats I have to say with the exception 
of of uh, President Obama because there is nothing in his personal conduct in office that uh, people are already Buck. No, no, no. I'm not talking about his policy or how he was or you know the legality of things. I'm talking. You know, there was no uh, there was no sex scandal during the Obama administration. Uh, but when you look at the Clintons, you look at the Kennedys, I mean, the big names in Democrat politics, and it's just so sleazy. There's so much. And, and then you John Edwards. I mean, I could I could play this game all day. You go down the list, go down the list. People that are engaged. I, I, mean, never, I mean, I don't know what's going on with uh, Anthony Weiner's not of the same stature as those other uh, individuals, particularly the Clintons or the Kennedys. He's not, uh, he was not Democrat royalty, but I mean, clearly he's in a whole lot of trouble. But there's something going on here, right? There's something clearly off about the moral compass of the Democrat Party when it is so supportive of people who are so deeply immoral themselves. And I think that that should matter. Now, I think that uh, with Comey and the Mueller investigation, it is very likely that there won't be any charges. It is very likely that for for Comey, I should say, I, I still believe Mueller is going to get somebody. He's going to find some lower level person and make an example of them because this is the nature of how this works. It was one of my my bigger arguments with some of my friends in law enforcement was whenever I started to feel like because of the resources invested in an investigation, they were pushing for a certain outcome, not based necessarily on uh, the, what, well, what is, mo- it's not that they weren't based on the facts because it was factual, but there's always a judgment call, right? There's always a, how far do you push this and what's the outcome that you are willing to accept? And a special counsel is not going to accept a, press conference where they say no wrongdoing occurred and that's the end of it. I just don't see that happening. So by hitting out at Comey today, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is establishing a narrative that will be used to combat whatever does come out of the Mueller investigation that Comey and the DOJ under Obama and Loretta Lynch, that there was all kinds of impropriety going on there and that the political fix was in for those years and that Republicans have to play not just by a different set of rules, but have to be on guard for the bureaucracy coming after them because of the infiltration of the federal bureaucracy, including the Department of Justice, by what are effectively left-wing activists. So this is this is how I see it all uh, all shaken out. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. 60% out still, I think it is, um, uh, out of power. And um, But we've gotten a lot restored. Um, we've had over a million uh, restored already, so that I, hopefully the number is going to come down. That's Governor Scott of Florida talking about what's going on down there right now. You've got millions of people still without power. You've had widespread uh, flooding. But, as I've been saying to you, Florida has prepared, had prepared, as well as as anyone could have expected or hoped for, really, for this hurricane. And a lot of evacuations took place, which is a good thing when you think about what happened, for example, in the Keys, where I think the statistic that I saw was that 25% of homes, the Florida Keys, were destroyed, just destroyed by this hurricane. 
Uh, I've been out of the Keys a couple times. Really, uh, really like it. Really beautiful place. I'm sorry they've been uh, battered so badly by this uh, by this storm. Um, oh, we've got to wait, Tim, and we wanted to take Tim before, but he uh, we hit, he had a connection problem. Tim uh, calling in from Louisiana. What's going on? Yeah, hey, uh, but going back to Hillary a little bit, she's written a book of excuses, by the way, not reasons, of why she lost to Trump. And I wish somebody would ask her what her excuses are for her loss to a relatively unknown junior senator from Illinois back in 2004. Yeah, it's not like this was a one-time thing, right? Hillary was the inevitable, definitely going to win candidate for president twice and lost twice. Exactly. And it's funny that she's not uh, harping on her excuses for losing to um, Barack Obama. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's because she wants to stay in good standing with her fellow Democrats. And anyone paying attention knows that Barack Obama has a a much more effective brand and a much more uh, powerful megaphone going forward than Hillary Clinton does. I, I think there's no question about that. I, I agree. And then, hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, absolutely. Shield side, Tim. Thank you. I know we got you on a better connection there. I appreciate it. All right. So you just wanted to get in some uh, uh, a Hillary caller there, but I, I want to go back to what's going on with the uh, aftermath of Irma here. You have uh, also Governor Scott talking about the rebuilding effort. I want to thank the president for the pre-landfall declaration. I want to thank him for the major declaration afterwards. That does not happen all the time. Uh, this president and this administration is absolutely focused, uh, like I am, on, uh, one, the safety of everybody, but on top of getting people back uh, to a normal life as fast as possible. So we got a lot of work to do. Um, but everybody's going to come together. We're going to, you know, get this, uh, this state rebuilt. Uh, this state is a uh, state of resu- uh, strong, resilient people. And we're going to get our jobs back. We're going to help build our companies again. And then we're going to uh, get this all cleaned up and hopefully get more tourists back in our state and get everybody back. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of coming together that's happened because of these hurricanes. Oh, wait, before I, I go there, actually. Uh, I did get some, oh, the team here, Ty and, and Amy, brought me some uh, information on Hurricane Jose, uh, which is a Category 1 storm. Uh, and I didn't even know that there was Hurricane Katia? I didn't even know about that one. Um, I guess that didn't make landfall or, or, or something. It was out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. But Hurricane Jose is is waiting out over the Atlantic, and it it, it could... Um, it has maximum sustained winds of 75 miles per hour, and it could hit. It could hit somewhere in the U.S. I'm not. I'm not sure where. There are a few different trajectories that they think it could go on. So they don't really know just yet. It could be. I guess it could be nothing. But it's. And you got another hurricane out there in the uh, Atlantic right now. So uh, with all of that happening, there are those stories that we look to. There are those uh, moments that bring us all together when we understand that. A natural disaster doesn't have any politics. A natural disaster is a a terrifying situation for men, women, and children, our fellow Americans, our fellow human beings. And so we saw a lot of heroism, a lot of uh, fantastic work from first responders and and law enforcement and 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 neighbors and people with boats and kayaks and and I you know. Whatever they, whatever else they, you know, boogie boards, whatever it is they were using uh, to help people, and that's been great. Uh, but you also see some of the ugly political 
prejudices unleashed at times like this from I don't mean the random I don't I don't care about random Internet trolls. Right. I don't, I don't spend my time here thinking about the comment section on the Daily Coast or the Huffington Post or or really on most websites, for that matter. The comment section tends to be something of a uh, of a literary sewer. Uh, but although I will say that also when I worked at the blaze, you know, I was, when I first went to the blaze, I was a website writer. That was how they, that was what they hired me to do in retrospect that I turned down, pardon me for saying some of the best business schools in the world to go work as a writer at a website, uh, was, that was a roll of the dice. Uh, That was a, a risk that I took there, but I spent a lot of time. Uh, looking at the comments on the back end of the website as well and getting a sense of the conservative media business online first. I learned it that way and then came into some of these more traditional mediums like radio and TV. Uh, but I would there are things in the comment section. I wish I kept them. I mean, sometimes you'll get somebody who just comments on something and is so incredibly brilliant and incisive that you're like, that is that is a that is gold right there. That comment is incredible. Uh, you do see them. I should start to set them aside, you know, copy and paste them and make make a sheet of them. But usually it's it's in the moment, right? You kind of had to be there reading it at the time. It doesn't necessarily keep. Oh, but that reminds me, I do want to have, uh, and we can do it this Friday. Um, I'll pull some comments off of uh, Facebook uh, and or messages from Facebook. So you go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Thoughts for the show, segment ideas, things you like. You, you want more history? You want more I don't know, political, philosophical, deep dives, whatever it is, right? You want more of Bernie? Who doesn't want more of the burn? The burn's amazing. Whatever it may be, you can tell me on Facebook, and I'll try to share some comments there. Something to add into our Freestyle Friday for those of you who don't call in on the phones. All right, let me get this buck train back on the tracks here, because I was talking about uh, I was talking about the politics that you see after during and after a natural disaster and it was a window into the mindset of the left the climate change stuff i don't know how much time i'll have to get into that today or not i've been meaning to but the the short version is that the arguments for hurricanes as evidence of climate change are so flimsy as to be laughable but the people that make them are completely uh psychotic with how much they believe it. I mean, and you're hearing more about about how uh, they want to punish politicians that aren't that don't believe in climate change. And you saw really horrible stuff. And and I saw this. This was on the on the Bill Maher show where I was in the audience on Friday. I was just there because S.E. Cup is a is a dear friend and, and I was supporting her and Molly had never seen the show. So I was there. You'll notice they've never had me on the show to this day. They know about me. Uh, they've had a lot of people on the show that I think make much less interesting guests than me who are conservatives, but they've never had me on the show. And at this point, given that it's been a few years and they've interviewed me and they know all about me, I got to figure they never will, um, which is fine. A, you know, they're allowed to not have me on the show, but I got to think, hmm, I wonder why that is. I wonder what it is about Bill Maher. People all know me and yet they never invite me on the show. Invite and the show that I went to see. I mean, they had they invited. I, what's the guy's name with the red sweater? I can't even remember, but I was sitting there in the audience. Bone Ken Bone, right? Ken Bone, isn't that right? They had the red sweater guy there who's like, well, you know, here I am, and I'm just like a normal guy, and don't listen to me on politics. And I'm not trying to be mean, but the guy's up there, and he says, "Don't listen to me. I'm just an average guy." And then we get to hear him talk for 20 minutes about politics with Bill Maher one on one. 
like I'm getting a lecture from this guy. He's like, well, and I think that we really need uh, more centrism and to come back to the center. And I thought you said, don't listen to me. I'm going to have some tips for public speaking later on in the show that I, that I, it's not really tips so much as lessons learned from my end of things. And we have that viral video uh, or audio, this is a radio show, viral audio of this guy from the side. You have to stay with me to the end of the show today because we've got some great stuff planned for you. I promise, it's going to be amazing. But on the Bill Maher show, you saw this, this willingness to celebrate the destructive power of the storm as something that is a punishment for political enemies. You know, there were jokes made about about Rush, to whom I am forever grateful for uh, giving me the honor of filling in for him a few times. They were they were making jokes, and I'm sitting in the audience. I mean, it was uncomfortable for me. I mean, I, look, I, I had no part of it, but I just happened to be there. And they're making jokes about how Rush had to evacuate his home, and they're making, and, and you've seen others out there too. You know, the the leftist comedians in the world about how oh, look what happened to Houston. You know, maybe if they believed in climate change, this wouldn't have happened. Though, I mean, really horrific vile stuff and i should note that you know not that it matters at all but houston actually votes democrat predominantly so you know it's just these people are not just um unthinking and unfeeling but they're also idiots on top of that and making really bad arguments that are really nasty and vicious and you've seen a lot of that and it, I, I, I am always on the lookout for it because it distresses me when I see conservatives. I mean, like I can't speak about random people. I'm talking about people who have followings, who have influence in the conversation, who have their own TV shows. There are people like that. You know, this guy who's um, Michael Ian, Michael Ian Black, right? Is he he's a this guy's got like two million Twitter followers. Writes just insane stuff about climate change, really nasty, horrible stuff about climate change. I mean, just just maniac stuff. And he's got two million Twitter followers. I'm not talking again. This isn't the comment section. These are the supposed luminaries of the left, or if not luminaries, at least the celebrities of the left. And on climate change, they've been just they've used the hurricanes for this argument. And it's just nonsense. It's such low level trash from them and at a time when people are really suffering and bad things are happening to really good people tens of thousands hundreds of thousands millions of people i mean think about what a what a uh, a disruption in your life it is to abandon your home and just the anxiety of what's going to happen in my home you know what what if people always think okay well maybe the flooding on the first floor but what if power lines get knocked down and there's a fire? You know, what if a tree gets knocked down and puts a huge hole in my living room, basically totals my house, right? These are the real concerns of people out there. But there is, at its core, something, well, because it really has no central moral guiding compass, American progressivism has a nastiness. It pretends to be all of It's all about emotions, but it's not about kindness, and that's why you see people with such large followings and such influence in the conversation who can just be so mean. That's why you see a cartoon showing, you know, secessionist Texans making stupid comments about uh, the federal government as they're being airlifted from the flood or whatever. You know, that that just that cartoon that really was a window into the mind of the people in D.C. who make a lot of the calls about the news cycle and about what you read, what you see, what you hear. That's what they think of other parts of the country. And they're so stupid as to make a cartoon like that that's not only cruel and disgraceful, but also just 
ignorant, right? I mean, I mean, not only is I mean, Houston, Houston is a is the uh, the hotbed of secessionist, anti-government, right-wing extremism. It's so dumb as to be almost beyond well, almost beyond worthy of, of any any kind of comment. But these again, these are not randoms. These are not just people posting on the web. These are people with followings. These are people with. Um, influence in the conversation. That's what I find so distressing. I didn't even get into the anti-government stuff that they're saying comes from her, you know, that the hurricanes show, but I got, as you can tell, I get a little bit um, hot and bothered there. So I'm going to bring it, I'm going to bring it back to neutral. I'm going to recharge my battery. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with you all, team. Um, biggest story on Drudge right now, the main banner on the Drudge Report is, uh, well, the title is Waiver Issued So Construction of Border Wall Can Begin. Here's some of the text from the story, which just went up as I... Okay, maybe it went up a little earlier than when I came on air, but it went up pretty close to when I came on air. The Department of Homeland Security has issued a waiver to waive certain laws... regulate Issued a waiver to waive certain laws, regulations, and other legal requirements to ensure the expeditious construction of barriers in the vicinity of the international border near Calexico, California. The waiver was first published in the Federal Register today. Uh, This waiver is pursuant to authority granted to the Secretary of Homeland Security by Congress and covers a variety of environmental, natural resource, and land land management laws. Uh, The department has... Okay, blah, 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 blah. More and more stuff here. Uh, So they're making it possible for more waivers or make it possible for more construction on a border wall near Calexico in California. So does this mean now that this is DHS, right? So this comes within the executive branch. This would seem to be perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. This would seem to be an indicator that there is some desire on the part of the Trump administration to start moving with wall stuff, what was it we had on the show um, earlier in the week? Uh, one of our guests, I forget which one it was now, saying, that, uh, "Guests, I have so many fantastic guests. Some of them, some of them blend together." Uh, but saying that he thought the only place where we would, uh, where you would not be able to see a policy retreat from Donald Trump, the only place we could really expect that would be on. The wall. That if he ever says, you know what, the wall's just not going to happen, then even his most ardent supporters, even those who just refuse to back down an inch despite everything, who was it? Thank you. It was Michael Goodman of the New York Post. I'd forgotten. Um, that that's where, that's where the, <laughs> if you will, the wall is where the line is drawn. Uh, and I think that may be true. Uh, I think that would be a difficult place because everything with everything else there's some degree of negotiation right tax reform negotiation repeal and replace i don't know that's pretty straightforward and that hasn't happened so uh that's not that's uh it's it's not so good you know it's not so good but on the wall you're either building a wall or you're not it is a pretty binary thing it's either yes or no yay or nay and i would have to think that somehow trump is going to push for this but I should also note, and maybe I'll have to get into more detail about this in the uh, next, uh, coming up here right after the break, 
that there was rep- there was reporting today that Trump does not expect that there that there will not be any wall specific funding or language in whatever Congress comes up with within this six month window to address the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA. If they're not going to use DACA as leverage to get a wall, when are they going to get a wall? I'm going to be watching this one closely. I'm I'm starting to get a little bit uneasy with the whole idea of like, well, you know, it's really early on and okay, but there are some, some signs here that we can look at. There are some... Uh, early data points that when you connect them, when you connect the dots, when you look at what's going on, you got to start thinking, okay, so Trump was never going to be the hardline conservative the media said that he was to try and scare people. But now I think you'd have to start to say that Trump just defies political ideological categorization. And that at the end of the day, he's just going to be Trump. Trump will be Trump. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Buck Sexton here, team. Uh, I hope that uh, you will get a chance, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this show on uh, iTunes. Great way to subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to share it with a friend, which I very much appreciate. It is incredibly helpful to me uh, if you would be willing to do so. Um, you can share the podcast. People can listen any time they want. And on the iHeart app, which is a great way to listen to any number of things, but it, it, particularly the Buck Sexton show, if you have the iHeart app, you just go to Buck Sexton with America Now, and you click it, and it's the show is always streaming there. So you can always just join the show and listen to it whenever you want, however you want. So just putting that out there, and that's a way for someone's like, hey, I can't listen to Buck. He's not in my area. Be like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Do you have a smartphone do you have wi-fi or cell service you can listen to buck Saxon with america now isn't it an amazing country we live in uh also uh, i i wish i had insights to offer you about the iphone x and 8 i don't really other than to say that uh the description sounds like i mean this does sound like the opening sequence of like a Terminator movie or something. It's a little scary. Here's what they say about the iPhone X. The iPhone X is a new smartphone from Apple, etc., etc. The phone will feature an all-glass design, yada, yada. The A11 Bionic chip with neural engine, Q1 wireless charging, and an improved rear camera with dual optical image stabilization. It, uh, yeah, um... That's a a one or a a one like this. That's a steak sauce, right? A eleven bionic chip. That's uh, that sounds scary. That sounds like if I get a little uh, if I get a little uppity with my smartphone, it may turn my appliances against me or something. Which I should note could happen in the future. You add AI, artificial intelligence, to the Internet of Things, the IoT, which is the connectivity and the sensors. Deployed to all kinds of devices in your home. Oh, that's right. I'm nerding out with some technology knowledge. Then bad things can happen. Then then scary things can happen. Um, so there is that. I I have our friend. Oh, I'm I got a little bit. Uh, my digression is throwing me off today. I, I'm feeling it's one of these days where I'm just just letting it rip. Um, 
Ben Dominich will be joining us in just a few minutes, and I, I want to give him a lot of time to discuss a couple of topics with us. So I'm going to uh, go into a break here in just a few. But before I do so, I just want to note that they're taking this whole, I mentioned it in the last hour, they're taking this whole single-payer thing, the Democrats are, very seriously. And the New York Times has a, I know, I, I look, I, I read the wall, the papers I subscribe to, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. I read all of them. I mean, not not all of Every paper, obviously, but I'm saying I, those are the papers that I, uh, newspapers that I read. I probably shouldn't be su- supporting them financially, but if I'm going to tear apart the Times and the Post, I, I've got to have access to the Times and the Post. Anyway, this Times piece says that there's been a jump in support among Democrats. No, no, I guess that's not really surprising at all for a government-run healthcare system. It's now. Uh, 63%, 63% of Democrats support a government-run health care system. Um, so that's that's pretty astonishing. Um, that's uh, that, And support overall for a government-run health care system is 43%. I should note that to get to single-payer, it's not like all of a sudden you just don't have any bills. There would have to be massive transformations in the actual existing healthcare system and what happens to insurance companies what what purpose do they serve and and at the end of the day this is just going to it'll just be ruinously expensive i mean ta- taxes on the middle class will have to skyrocket taxes on everybody will have to everyone who pays taxes at least which is half the country only or i think it's less than half the country now uh, their taxes are all going to really go up and if you think that you're going to get good health care when the government is paying the bills. I I got news for you. That is that is not the case. Um, but you don't think that. You know that this is a terrible idea. But Democrats are going to go with it. It like the like minimum wage. It sounds appealing. The reality, the truth behind single payer. By the time we figure it out, it'll be Democrats in power for so long that we we won't even remember what it's like to have a discussion about a free market and health care. That's the plan. This is one of the built-in failures, unfortunately, of a republic like ours, and that accountability is an imperfect thing, and that's putting it mildly. And if you are able to game the system such that whoever makes certain decisions now will never be around to be held accountable for them in the future, and the political party just maintains its power... You know, you never throw out the guys who are doing the bad stuff. You never manage to get to a better system of governance because there's there is no real accountability. And on single payer with Democrats, that's what will happen. Just like by the time we by the time we really see how terrible Obamacare would have been, no one will blame Obama for it anymore. Welcome back, team. Buck here with you in the Freedom Hut. We've got Ben Dominich on the line as our guest right now. He is the publisher of The Federalist and host of The Federalist Radio Hour. You can read his latest on thefederalist.com. Mr. Dominich, great to have you back, sir. Great to be with you as always, Buck. Uh, so I have to I have to confess, I do not know anything about uh, this person, Jameel Hill, but I see you've written a piece on Jameel Hill. What is going on here? So, so Jamel Hill is. Oh, the, Jamel, oh, pardon oh, me. Uh, that's fine. Of the uh, of the six o'clock ESPN uh, Sports Center, the you know marquee show, obviously of, of ESPN. And just the other night, she went on a bit of a rant in the middle of uh, Monday Night Football, 
uh, on Twitter, where she started to essentially go after Donald Trump and his supporters. Uh, of all things, it was actually inspired by a, a conversation that I think began because people were arguing about Kid Rock and whether uh, he was uh, inappropriate or a white supremacist or something like that. She weighed in with a bunch of tweets calling Trump a white supremacist, saying that he was elevated only because he was a white supremacist and a white person, and said a bunch of other uh, pretty nasty things. And uh, there was some blowback for it, as you might expect, uh, from a lot of people who were demanding that you know she justify what she was saying and things like that. ESPN, however, as you know, has been very defensive of their anchors' ability to weigh in on anything political that they want to say, as long as it comes from the left. Um, they've been a little more uh, uh, pre- you know preventive when it comes to their staffers saying things that lean right. And so in this case, uh, they put out a statement that doesn't even amount to a, a slap on the wrist. They basically said, we, we've discussed the matter with Jamel, and she agrees it was inappropriate, was the statement they put out this afternoon. Uh, Buck, we're talking about somebody who was elevated to co-hosting this 6 p.m. hour of ESPN. And ESPN, as you know, has been a place that has seen a pretty significant decline in ratings in recent years, and uh, a lot of people not just cutting the cord, but, you know, not wanting to get it anymore. And the argument that the ESPN folks advance is that this, uh, you know, has to do with just people, you know, watching games on mobile devices and not really, you know, tuning into the channel anymore. I would argue that it's actually because of people like Jamel Hill, who don't just make everything political when they have the opportunity, but make for pretty boring television. And uh, if you tune into that hour, I would argue you see a set that looks like it hasn't changed in essentially 20 years and something that looks a lot like local television, but with two fairly boring uh, co-hosts who spend a lot more time politically posturing than they do talking about sports, which is what most people turn into ESPN to see. I think that, and I'm not somebody who watches a lot of sports, so I'll put that out. I do watch, but I certainly don't watch commentary of, about sports. I don't, that's just not, it's, that's not my thing. I mean, for, for folks who love that, by all means. But, you know, when I, when I hear that they're, as a radio guy, I hear people listening to a three hour long radio show about a sporting event, I, I just, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. I, I feel like the, uh, the leftist, tilt, though, that we see from a lot of the sports commentariat uh, is a relatively new thing, but it, it, and, and it's also, there's a kind of unabashed quality to it all. Like, like this is, mm-hmm. it's now out there, they don't care, they're fine with it, ESPN is fine with it. Where do you think this came from? I mean, it's not like all of a sudden there are, there are progressives in our midst who decided they wanted to get into sports. Do you, can you identify the shift? What happened? Yeah. So there are a couple of things that happen. I think most of all, though, what we're actually seeing here at Buck is a bias among uh, among media types who think that their audience is like them. So, for instance, if you talk to a media type who works at ESPN, I've interviewed a couple on on my own radio show. They'll say things like, "Well, nobody really watches highlights anymore. They just they just you know watch those on Twitter. They don't they don't really want to see those anymore. They want to see commentary." Well, the truth is, most people don't use Twitter. Actually, most Americans don't use it, you know, and and certainly some do. And and when they do, they might look for highlights there. But the fact is that lots of people like to see highlight shows. And that's what ESPN sort of built their whole model on. The the other problem that they have really is that on uh, on the sort of virtue signaling side, the fact is that most of these reporters came come from backgrounds where they went to Northwestern. They went to Syracuse. They went to a lot of different, you know, schools that are known for their journalism programs. They have leftist center views. I think the difference now is that with the advent of social media, they have a new opportunity to express those views 
in ways that uh, get an immediate response from uh, their, the viewers and from people online, and that this response often frustrates them, makes them angry, makes them double down, which is what you'll see if you look back and see what Jamel Hill was writing last night. She, she was kind of doubling down on this idea, you know, well, no, it's not just that he's wrong. It's, that he's, it's not just that he's unfit. It's that he's a white supremacist, and he's supported by white supremacists and surrounded by white supremacists. And I think that what that really uh, equates to is it's virtue signaling for them to their colleagues about how brave they are, you know, for standing up for what they believe in. But the fact is, you know, Buck, when, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it, before the advent of social media, you wouldn't have really been able to tell the politics of anybody who was talking about sports on TV. You wouldn't necessarily know. You know, you might. I mean, I, 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 I have to jump in because this is what I think some of the folks even at CNN and MSNBC don't understand is that you can't have Jim Acosta or Jim Shuto or anyone else at the networks named Jim, who's a big correspondent tweeting about, you know, how Trump is an idiot at 9 a.m. and then going on a news broadcast at 6 p.m. and want to be treated as a nonpartisan independent journalist. It doesn't work you are that 100%, way. You're 100% correct. Imagine the attitude that would have had, obviously, one of the most famous duos in, in, the, in the history of ESPN is, is uh, Keith Olbermann and Kenny Mayne. Okay, they would host a sports center together. They were very funny. Uh, they were very biting. You didn't know you could have paid attention and figured out that Keith Olbermann was a liberal. OK, but imagine if Keith Olbermann at, at that time had had Twitter and had the ability to sort of come off a set at ESPN and then start ranting and raving about politics and his particular views. The fact that he didn't protected his ability to be a sportscaster who could be enjoyed by right and left alike. And I think right now, the fact that there is no barrier, there is no filter for that sort of thing, it doesn't just hurt the business of sports. It does, as you say, also hurt our ability to take any of these people seriously when they try to pretend like they don't have a particular viewpoint and then spend the rest of their day complaining about the president or about the Republican Party uh, or about the president's supporters. We're speaking to Ben Dominich. He's the publisher of The Federalist, host of The Federalist Radio Hour. Federalist is one of my favorite sites. I commend it to all of you. You should go check it out. If you're not already uh, bookmarking it in your browser, you should. Uh, Ben, you're a guy who can cover a lot of ground, so I want to take advantage of that if I can for a moment here. Your take on the deal that Trump struck with Pelosi and uh, Schumer. What is it? Okay, so uh, to back up a step, a step uh, thank you, first of all, for saying those nice things about the Federalists. But uh, about uh, in May at the Federalist, I actually wrote a piece that argued that Donald Trump needed to pivot to the middle in order to save himself from impeachment. And the argument that I had at the time was essentially Democrats are going to run in, in 2018, and whether, whether they admit it or not, they will, if they take the House, attempt to impeach President Trump. And they don't even really need a justification. It's just that they're, they're hardcore. Yeah, he's Trump. Really wants them to do it. Exactly. He's Donald Trump. That's the justification. Um, and so my argument was actually that, you know, if we look back historically, there's a situation for a president that actually compares a lot to Donald Trump, and that's Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, in his first year in office, had you know struggled with the health care issue. He had a special prosecutor by mid middle of the year that was looking into his uh, a bunch of different things related to his situation. There was a real backlash against his election in a lot of different ways. And you had a White House that was that had a lot of upheaval. That had a bunch of different staffers come in and out uh, in the in going months. Uh, that led to obviously a wave election in 1994 that damaged him. But the the fact is that after that election. Bill Clinton changed. He triangulated. He decided he was going to work with Republicans on some issues and Democrats on other issues. As you know, 
Donald Trump is really an independent politically. He is not truly a Republican. He's not truly a Democrat. He's been all over the map on a lot of different things in his career. He knows Chuck Schumer. He gets along with Chuck Schumer. They're both from the boroughs. And I think that when you look at their relationship, they're a lot closer personally than Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell are to Trump. Ryan and McConnell came to Trump in, back in January, and they said, we'll have a repeal bill on your desk by Easter. We'll have a tax bill on your desk by August. And then we'll spend the latter part of the year on infrastructure. Obviously, they haven't delivered on any of those things. And so for a guy who's a political neophyte like Trump, he looks around and basically says, hey, if I can't trust you guys to get stuff done, maybe I should work with the other people. And I think in this situation, that's thoroughly logical. Now, the problem, of course, is, you know, for Trump, he's going to need to be able to cut deals with Democrats that Republicans will also still be able to support. That's not necessarily going to be the best policy for the country, Buck. I think that that's going to lead to a lot of things I'm going to dislike. But if it turns out to be politically feasible for Trump to do that, and I think it probably is, it's actually going to be something that's probably going to help him have a lot more effective presidency and prevent him from being in a position where Democrats can afford to be 100 percent aligned against him. I would love to see what would happen, Buck, if if tomorrow the president came out and announced that he was going to support a hike in the minimum wage, but also a work requirement for every welfare program that we have in the country. That would be a very difficult vote for a lot of Democrats to take because, of course, they're opposed to those work requirements. But the minimum wage hike has been something that they've been beating you know, the drum on for ages. And it's the sort of thing that Trump, alone among Republican you know, presidential candidates in this past cycle, could potentially offer them because of things that he said in the past. So I don't know if it'll work out, but I think that in terms of his own success, it's not an illogical move on his part. And even if it's made out of animosity towards Ryan and McConnell, it does make some political sense. Ben, one more for you, and I appreciate you calling in here. Ben's from The Federalist, everybody, where he is the publisher. Uh, Ben, uh, what would it take for Trump's real base, his original supporters back in the very beginning of the primary when there were, what, 17 candidates and people that have been with him all along and really believe, what do you think it would take in terms of policy for them to finally say, whoa, that's not okay? Mm-hmm. I think that it would take a couple of things. I think one, uh, you know, one aspect would be, uh, and I think that this should not be underestimated, is if he actually gets us involved in a war. I think a lot of his supporters, you know, viewed him as someone who would prevent something like that, who would who would end wars and not, you know, get us involved in new ones. I also think that they would uh, have a different attitude towards him, frankly, if he stopped being the kind of force against what they view as political correctness and the and the forces that are involved there. I think that that would actually peel a lot of people off. A telling factor from this past week was the fact that you saw Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, come out and roll back a number of things that uh, announced that she was going to be rolling back a number of things related to President Obama's Title IX policy. They didn't get that that didn't get a lot of blowback or attention uh, in the media, but it's a significant factor. And it's one of those things that I think flows into his whole conversation about uh, about freedoms that uh, relate to speech and issues like that on, on not just on campuses, but in the public square. That's something that I think keeps his loyalists so close to him. And frankly, it's, this is always a binary. As much as people dislike Trump or as they dislike some of these other Republican candidates, the fact is that they look across at the other party. They look at what they're being told. They look at people like Jamel Hill, who say that anybody who supports the president is a white supremacist. And they say, well, guess what? I'm not going to go along with you then. I'm supposed to vote for your person now because they think that I'm racist. That's that's something that I think is so fundamental to what's going on right now. As long as Democrats continue to wrap themselves in this identity politics that says that anything traditionalist, anything patriotic is in support of something evil and racist, then they're never going to be able to make inroads with the kind of people who were frankly decisive voters 
for President Obama twice and then for President uh, then for Donald Trump in the last election. Ben Dominich of the Federalist. Go check out thefederalist.com. Ben, thanks so much for your uh, your time today, buddy. Appreciate it. Great to be with you as always, Buck. Take care. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. We are facing a couple of very difficult obstacles. First, the other side has dedicated propaganda channels. That's what I call Fox News. It has outlets like Breitbart and, you know, crazy Infowars and things like that. In this particular election, it was aided and abetted by the Russians and the role that Facebook and other platforms played. We are late to that. We did not understand how a reality TV campaign would so dominate the media environment. I think the Democrats can do a lot, but they are still going to face a very difficult media environment. And we've got to figure out how we're going to break through. I mean, obviously, more podcasts, more other ways of communicating so voices can be heard and real positions can be understood is part of it. But we're still at a disadvantage. There we have Hillary Clinton explaining to us that she lost the election because there aren't enough liberal media outlets out there. Wow, she is brazen. Uh, I, I almost respect it if I didn't despise it so much. But she has this book out, uh, which is called What Happened, as I've been talking about on the show. And we have somebody who's joining us now who has been reading through the book and can discuss that as well as some other issues of politics right now. Sarah Westwood is on the line. She's a White House correspondent for The Washington Examiner. Sarah, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Okay, this book, What Happened? Tell me about it. What's in it? Well, this is kind of Hillary Clinton's way of starting to rehabilitate her image after what was clearly a devastating loss for her personally, for her party. It's kind of a mix of these personal justifications of why she chose to be evasive on things like her Wall Street speeches or the Clinton Foundation, and also casting blame on the Democratic Party, on Senator Bernie Sanders, on the media, like in the snippet you just played, on President Trump himself. And a lot of people have taken this to be this blame game book where she's going through and she's laying responsibility at the feet of everyone who cost her the election without really fully acknowledging the role that her own flaws played in losing the election. And as far as Democrats go, there are not a whole lot of them in elected office right now who seem to be excited that this is coming out because she's a deeply unpopular figure still. And her presence on the national stage doesn't really help them sort out the divisions they have in their party right now. What can you tell me about the blame that's being thrown at the burn? That's been getting a lot of headlines. Bernie Sanders uh, getting uh, some some rough stuff in this book from Hillary Clinton and from her book tour. Well, Hillary Clinton is making the argument that some Democrats agree with, that Bernie Sanders paved the way for Donald Trump to use his successful crooked Hillary attacks by introducing this narrative that she was somehow withholding something nefarious from her paid speeches to Wall Street when she refused to release the transcripts that started during the Democratic primary. But he did. Senator Bernie Sanders chose deliberately not to go after Hillary Clinton for her emails. He waged what I think a lot of people consider to be a very issues based campaign. Uh, 
And she highlights the fact that he is an independent. He's not a registered Democrat. He's never really claimed to be a member of the Democratic Party, making the argument that he didn't get into the Democratic primary to elevate a Democrat to the White House, but to disrupt the left. And she said, ultimately, that wasn't helpful to her chances. We're speaking to Sarah Westwood. She is a White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. Uh, Sarah, tax reform is an issue that's getting a a lot of attention now because it's the the major policy agenda item that the Trump administration says is up next. We have not seen a lot of success on the legislative front with this White House so far, but it is still early. What can you tell us about where things stand on tax reform and, and the possibilities of getting Democrats to come along? Well, tonight, President Trump is making an overture to Democrats in the Senate that he'll need to get on board by inviting three of them, along with three Republicans, to the White House for dinner. Uh, He's been making these overtures to Democrats who are vulnerable in 2018, who are up for re-election in states where Trump is popular, who might need to be seen embracing the president. And so... uh, That's going to be really the key here. Remember that at the end of September, which is coming up really soon, Republicans will lose their ability to pass tax reform using just 51 votes. So no matter what happens, they're going to need to get eight Democrats on their side. President Trump is just starting that pivot a little bit earlier than I think Republicans expected him to, and he's starting to try to make his case to those Democrats. Sarah Huckabee Sanders said as much earlier today. Most everyone can agree that Americans should keep more of their money than the government. They spend it certainly far better than the government can. And I think that's something that is a common goal that a lot of people want to come together on. I think by nature of them sitting down with the president, that's a very good first start. The the president, I think, has demonstrated uh, both in his uh, business world and as president that he can make deals. And that's certainly what he's looking to do. And he's going to work hard to make sure that we get the best deal possible on tax reform. What would a deal look like, though, with Democrats? I mean, what do we have any sense of that? I assume the Democrats are already trying to, you know, set the table here a bit. What would they need to go forward with a tax cut? Well, that that very question was put to Sarah Sanders today, and she couldn't quite answer it. And notice that what she was talking about there was a tax cut. It was not tax reform, which is what Republicans have been pushing for, to make fundamental changes to the tax code that make filing your taxes easier, that close some of the loopholes. And that's often politically unpopular because it involves uh, getting at what Democrats would characterize as tax cuts for the rich or for corporations, even though it's making structural changes to the tax code. And so because of that, I think the White House seems to be setting its sights right now just on getting a tax cut for the middle class or people who could really use it and not necessarily focusing on the tax reform that was originally the goal of Republicans once they got control of all three branches of government. Any word, by the way, on the looming uh, border battle? I mean, I see here, main header on Drudge, waiver issued so construction of border battle can begin. Well, the problem is that it's not clear how hard the White House is going to fight for funding for the border wall or some of these other immigration enforcement priorities when it comes to a DACA protections bill. I know it's it's been out there that President Trump has asked Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, if this is something he'd be willing to consider. But it's really difficult to see some of these 
further left politicians voting for anything that cracked down on illegal immigration. Yeah, even as part of the package. I I think you're right. I think it's going to be too hard for the Democrats to swallow that one. Sarah Westwood, everybody. She is a White House correspondent for The Washington Examiner. Read her latest on WashingtonExaminer.com. Sarah, great stuff. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. You are now entering the Freedom Hub Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Wargaming can often be a deeply unsettling and even terrifying exercise. The case of North Korea these days and the options that the U.S. has on hand to deal with this belligerent nuclear power on the Korean Peninsula is no exception to that. In fact, some of the options that we might have to consider in the future are exactly the kind of things that keep the most grizzled veteran Pentagon analysts and think tank wonks up late at night wondering about what the future of this world will really be. Now, I don't mean to overstate the case. There is an overwhelming likelihood that North Korea will continue in some form of status quo for the months ahead and probably even years. But in order to understand the full scope and and all of the possibilities on the Korean Peninsula, let's look at the various options for dealing with North Korea. You just had earlier this week the U.N. Security Council pass a resolution that would enhance the already very strict sanctions on the so-called Hermit Kingdom. Now, initially, Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, had wanted there to be a complete embargo on all oil to North Korea. Uh, North Korea relies on China for a large portion of its oil, and it, uh, at least of its, li- of its liquid fossil fuels. And the idea here is that if you were to completely cut off that supply, it is very possible that you would have major economic dislocations inside North Korea. And also, you might get Pyongyang's attention because it needs fossil fuels, uh, liquid fossil fuels, not just for its vehicles, but also in manufacturing processes and for its war machine in general. Uh, We didn't get a full embargo, though. The UN Security Council has China and Russia on it as permanent members with the ability to veto, and so there had to be some backroom negotiating. There will be a uh, limitation put upon North Korean exports, and that will hurt hard currency reserves inside of North Korea, which may get Kim Jong-un's attention at some level. And we did not get a a complete freeze of all of Kim Jong-un's assets abroad, which also Nikki Haley had wanted uh, from the get-go. But so there are are some aspects of this that we can uh, be pleased about, but we also need to understand that while it's a win in the diplomacy column for the Trump administration, it is very unlikely to be enough. It is uh, not going to be the case that uh, this will alone change the trajectory of the North Korean uh, militaristic, hyper-militaristic project of achieving nuclear weapons that are, well, nuclear devices that go on top of ICBMs, which would allow them to hit the U.S. mainland. 
So what are the uh, I should also note, and this is just an interesting aside, that even if China had gone forward with the most extreme sanctions that were being discussed. So if China said we will shut off all oil, uh, all oil exports to North Korea. North Korea has substantial coal deposits, and there's reason to believe that they already have the technological know-how to engage in coal liquefaction, which would let them fill up the shortfall in, uh, in gas, in, in, uh, in oil. So they could take coal and liquefy it. There, there is a process through which they could do that, and they probably could do that in sufficient, uh, in su- with a sufficient capacity to make up for the loss in fossil fuels. And even if it wasn't entirely made up for, well, this is a country that has been dealing with deprivation of all kinds for decades. And we should note that the suffering of North Korea, while we think that it puts pressure on the Kim regime, it really just brings together the North Korean people in their uh, exclusion from the rest of the world and in their sense that they are a besieged people. But we also have to keep in mind the ideology of the North Korean state as we look at all these different options. UN Security Council is ratcheting up the pressure. That's good. There are a number of places where more can be done, and I think the Trump administration will do more in order to uh, increase the pain in uh, the upper ranks of North Korea when it comes to their military programs, their nuclear programs, their missile tests. And that won't stop them, but it may at least slow things down. They may make Kim Jong-un think twice about some of uh, his actions, which, keep in mind, recently he was talking about firing missiles in the direction of Guam, which is U.S. territory. Uh, But as I've been telling you, the North Korean regime is all about reunification of the Korean peninsula by force. And they have been preparing the North Korean people for this for decades. So then we get into what would we do in response? Now, if there were a North Korean military incursion into South Korea, or if they fired a missile at us, one of our allies, or at South Korea with any, when we had any reason to believe that it was a a nuclear missile, I, I don't even know if we would wait to figure that out. The response, the retaliatory response, would be tremendous. But what if North Korea engaged in a slower offensive that wasn't based on nuclear weapons? Uh, how, how quickly would we escalate, and to what degree would we be willing to escalate on, say, behalf of South Korea or Japan? There's a very interesting piece that didn't get nearly enough attention. It came out last month. There was a think tank piece on attitudes towards the use of nuclear weapons. And I wrote about this on TheHill.com today under uh, the title, Americans May Actually Support Nuking North Korea First. Now, it's a provocative title. I, I, make, no, uh, I, I, I make no bones about it. I mean, that's, that is, in fact, a, a title meant to get people's attention because I want them to read the rest of the piece. And what I go into is an analysis of this survey of Americans that shows that in a military conflict started by the other side, but that doesn't even really make that much difference in terms of the morality at play, in a military conflict, a majority of Americans, this includes Democrats and Republicans, uh, that were polled in this survey would be willing 
to use force, missile strikes, perhaps even up to and including nuclear strikes, although that was not specified, missile strikes to kill 100,000 civilians to protect 20,000 U.S. soldiers. A near majority, 48 percent, according to this, uh, inter- uh, this International Security Journal study, uh, almost half would be willing to kill 2 million civilians to protect 20,000 U.S. troops. Now, if you're going to kill 2 million civilians, it stands to reason that you'd be willing to use a nuclear weapon to accomplish that, although that is an extrapolation from the actual uh, exercise we're talking about here, this actual think tank piece. Uh, But the American uh, opinion on the notion of massive use of force is, is not what I think some think tankers and others have believed for a long time. There is a nuclear taboo, they call it. This is what they refer to. This is how they refer to it in international relations circles. And the nuclear taboo is essentially that nuclear weapons are so terrible that there is almost no reason, no rationale that anyone could come up with short of uh, existential self-defense that anyone would use nuclear weapons. But if you were to push that a bit further, I think what you see is that depending on the circumstances... Uh, the U.S. and other countries with nukes may, in fact, feel threatened enough or decide that it is the less uh, horrific option to have a, well, not just a massive aerial strike, but even a nuclear strike to disable the enemy's warfighting capability and to protect our troops and our people. So it's really a, a philosophical question, but I think that it's far too easy for us to just suggest that we have all these nukes and would never use them. Uh, If all of a sudden Kim Jong-un loaded up a bunch of VX gas and was pointing it at 30,000 U.S. troops across the DMZ, are we really so sure that we wouldn't respond to that imminent threat with a a nuclear retaliation or at least a, a massive military retaliation that would result in tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of casualties? These are difficult questions, and I understand that, and and it's not something that I, uh, by any means, want to spend too much time thinking about. But when we're looking at the crisis in the Korean Peninsula, I think we do have to consider that all options on the table may mean just that. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Hey team, it's Buck Sexton. I know that I could be accused of bucksplaining here, or mansplaining perhaps. I know that this may be a moment where I could be criticized for trying to protect the patriarchy in some way, Uh, but I saw this piece, and it is really worthwhile, and it's important, and I don't care that it's not politically correct. I don't care that the uh, feminist liberal left would decry it for a whole bunch of reasons. It's important. There are uh, young people who listen to this show, including a whole bunch of college-aged men and women. And for female college-age listeners, uh, this is a must-read, a must-read piece in the Wall Street Journal. It was written by Jennifer uh, Braceras, And she's just a lawyer and a writer in Boston. And here's what she writes. Straight talk for college women. 
Be prudent about alcohol and know that school administrators don't have your interests at heart. Let me give you some of what Ms. Braceris writes in the piece. Quote, Dear female members of the class of 2021, Now that you've set up your rooms and purchased your course materials, it's time for some straight talk about sexual assault. If you follow the news, you've probably heard that one in four of you will be sexually assaulted on campus before graduation. Don't panic. Your parents did not drop you and your belongings in a crime zone. Claims of a campus rape crisis are wildly inflated, and a little common sense will go a long way toward keeping you safe. The assertion that nearly a quarter of all college women are sexually assaulted is based on surveys that ask vaguely worded questions about behavior ranging from an unexpected kiss to rape. In analyzing the responses, those who lump all such conduct into a catch-all category of sexual assault deliberately create a false impression in order to promote their view of the campus as a rape culture. The truth is, you are far less likely to be raped than women your age who are not in college. The Justice Department estimates approximately 1 in 53 college women will be victims of rape or sexual assault. An unacceptable number, but hardly an epidemic. And end quote. So then she goes into what the campuses are doing about this after stating, and it's very important that we all know this, that rape culture is really a terrible lie, uh, that the campus rape epidemic is a, an instance of politically motivated hysteria, not based in the facts, built upon a tremendous amount of dishonesty. But there is the very real uh, possibility for any young woman on a college campus of a sexual assault, of, of a rape. And it is much more likely to be an acquaintance rape than a stranger. And so if we're going to try to help young women navigate this culture of drinking and hookup culture on campus, uh, I think it's time that we speak honestly about the best ways to approach this. And this is not, and the author of this piece makes this point as well, but I've been saying this for some time, it's not about victim blaming. There's no excuse for sexual assault. There's no excuse for rape. It is a felony. It is a serious crime and should be punished as such. This is not don't wear a short skirt. This is not don't go to parties. This is not don't drink at parties. It's just guidelines that will keep women not just safer on campus, but I think make them happier. And I am somebody who is a proponent of enjoying yourself in school. I am not a Puritan. I'm not somebody who pretends that I didn't do a lot of partying and probably a bit too much drinking in my day in college. And I've always enjoyed going out on dates, but I've had girlfriends in my life. I've had people that I was building a relationship with. Uh, I have not been somebody who was a proponent of this blackout party make out with whomever is near to you and see what happens. And that's what goes on a lot of these campuses. So here's some of the advice that is written in this Wall Street Journal piece. And I agree, and this is written by a woman, but I am endorsing it. I agree wholeheartedly with this. Here are the bullet points. Do not get drunk and go home with someone you don't know. Very simple, but very good advice. Not just because you uh, put yourself at a higher risk for 
a uh, sexual assault, which statistically is true, but because it's just not smart decision making. It's not going to lead to, in many cases, sometimes it'll be fine. I know people that have gotten completely, you know, off their off their butts drunk. And the first time they were ever together, that's how it was. And now they're married and have kids. Okay, so I'm not saying that it means that something bad is going to happen, but just in the aggregate or overall, if you're looking at decision making, do not go home drunk with someone you don't know. It's just it's just good advice. Another one. Uh, reject the hookup culture. And this is not so much an issue of preventing sexual assault, although that does play a role in this as well, as it is women will be happier when they, on campus, when they hold the men around them to a certain standard. Uh, She writes in this piece, sex without trust and commitment often ends poorly. It may sound old-fashioned, but it's really common sense. If you don't know someone well and you're unsure whether you can trust him, is it really a good idea to be alone with him in a state of partial undress? It's just good advice. Another one. Be self-confident. It's okay to meet a guy around the keg or the pong table, but hold out for a real di- a real date. You deserve it. Young ladies who are listening, I, I, look, I was a resident counselor in college as well as a guy who partied a lot. I've seen this from all the different sides. And people would say at Amherst when I was there, which now seems like it was eons ago, uh, the dating is dead at Amherst. Well, I had a very serious girlfriend at Amherst, and we had a great time together, and I took her out on dates. She was my girlfriend. I knew her family. I knew her siblings, and I treated her with respect. I treated her as my friend, and yes, she was a romantic partner. Every single young woman listening to the show right now, I advise you to demand all of those things from somebody that you are going to be physical with. I'm not I'm not here moralizing. I'm not telling you, you know, you got to wait till marriage. I'm not preaching abstinence or any of that. I am just saying that you should demand respect and a relationship from somebody that you plan on being physically involved with. It's it's just going to nine times out of 10 make you happier in the end, in my experience, which is all that I can speak from. People would say dating is dead at Amherst College. That was not true. That was a self-justifying lie that people would spread all over the place so that they could feel like their behavior was normalized. But dating was not dead. Some of us chose to actually have girlfriends and or boyfriends and go about things in a slightly more old-fashioned way. I'm not all that old-fashioned, but when it comes to these issues, there's a lot of wisdom in the older folks. And I know everyone who's listening who's, you know, 35, which is my age, and above probably is shaking their head in agreement with most of this because they've seen it because they know. They know. And I get it when you're 22 and you're, you know, 19, it feels like it's all so new and exciting and you want to be liked and you want to be cool. And I understand all those pressures, but that's why a piece like this in the Wall Street Journal from a woman who is just telling it like it is, is so helpful. So be self-confident. Ask for a real date. Spend time with people. You can make your own decisions about how fast or how far you go, but make sure that the person is actually a person that sees you as a person. Um Here's another another bit of advice she gives. Buyer beware. If you decide to participate in the hookup culture, go in with your eyes open. 
Promises made in the heat of passion are meaningless. Suitors will promise the moon to get you into bed. Many of them will want nothing to do with you the next day, which will leave you feeling humiliated and exploited. That doesn't make you a rape victim. It makes you naive. Uh, Guys will lie to get girls into bed. This is nothing new. This is not a surprise to any of you. But it's in the moment when someone's saying things and they're hearing all the right things, they people forget this, especially younger people who college aged and they just feel like this is the one or there's so much passion here. It has to be right. Slow it down. Slow it down. Next bit of advice. Be clear about your wishes. If you do not want to do something, say so clearly. You are an adult and you have free will and moral agency. You have a right to say no at any stage, but do not expect your partner to infer reluctance from your demeanor. Only you know what makes you uncomfortable and it's up to you to articulate it. This woman's a lawyer and she's making very clear that the the boundaries should be clear from anybody who's engaging in sexual conduct. If you're going to be doing that stuff, as a lot of people on campuses, a lot of college-age people are, you're, if you're old enough to do that, you're old enough to speak your mind about what you're okay with and what you're not. And you know, if you're not, you're not uh, comfortable doing that, then you shouldn't be with that person. This is this is old-fashioned advice, I know, but it's good advice. I always remember I had uh, a a grandmother who was just a wonderful. Oh, I had I had two grandmothers, but one grandmother on my maternal side was just a wonderful person, really. Just a great human being, um, very smart, very wise, very kind, and really fun to talk to. But, you know, understood that you had to enjoy life, too. You know, she liked dance and music and, and food. And, you know, she was very religious, but she also understood that you got to have fun, too. You know, there was a balance to be struck all the time. And uh, she gave advice. I remember hearing the advice from her uh, to she had... Uh, she had three daughters and the advice was very simple. It was, and, and, it, and I think it would upset the feminists of the world right now to hear this kind of thing. Well, at least on one point it was maintain your appearance part one. And if he ever hits you, you leave. That's part two. Now that's not uh, that's not a roadmap for everything in life, but Those are two very good parts of advice. Maintain your appearance is not a superficial standpoint, by the way. If you're in a monogamous relationship with somebody, you have an obligation to the other person in that relationship to try and present yourself as best you can. This isn't everyone has to be an underwear model. This isn't no one's good enough. It's just try to be respectful of the fact that in a relationship between a man and a woman... There is also a physical bond along with the emotional, spiritual, and uh, psychological bond. And so you do the best you can. You don't just give up, basically. Now, uh, people would say, oh, that's, you know, that's not about that, and you have kids. And Okay, fine. I'm just telling you, I think that's, from what I have seen in life, I think that is sound advice. And the other one is self-explanatory. If he hits you, you leave. Absolutely. You're, and you're gone. You're done. There's no, there's, no second, there's no second round. There's no part two. So I always thought that was very interesting, very straightforward advice. And I think that some young women today on college campuses would really benefit from older, wiser women telling them the truth about what really goes on between men and women and and giving them real advice uh, 
And uh, I should just note in this piece, she finishes, this author finishes by saying, if you're ever assaulted, seek immediate help from someone you trust who is not affiliated with the college and go to the police. Because she says the college's interests are not the same as these young women who are, in fact, assaulted. And they sometimes will try to find a way to take care of their public relations interests first and foremost. So I thought this was a very powerful piece by uh, by Jennifer Braceras. And I really think young women I look at my little sister is now a fully grown law school graduate and, you know, is, is a woman who you know I go to for advice. But if she were still in college, I promise you, I would have sent her. You know, she's engaged and she's going to be getting married soon. But if she were still in college, I would send her this piece and say, Daisy, you got to read this. And I think that's how I feel about my little sister. So any young woman across the country right now, read this piece in the journal. Buck is back with you here, team. I have something of a follow-up to yesterday when I was telling you about my uh, memories of 9-11 and how on my college campus at Amherst, there was a sentiment among some professors and even some students that somehow we shouldn't be focusing on the massive jihadist sneak attack that killed a few thousand of our people, but that the real problem was U.S. foreign policy or even the response to the 9-11 attacks. There was, as I have mentioned before uh, on this show, a flag burning a few weeks after the 9-11 attacks, and I was there and saw it happen and you had the, the classic leftist idiots, the kinds of individuals who would be cheering on a modern-day Antifa protest, uh, lighting flags on fire, not at some rally to support the uh, robust U.S. foreign policy of invading foreign countries. No, it was a community session for thanking uh, everybody for their kindness and well wishes from those who had lost family members on 9-11. And one of them was a friend of mine, a classmate of mine, who lost her sister in one of the towers. And these imbeciles showed up and lit flags on fire. Now, that was back in 2001. And I believe the Boston Globe, or maybe it was the Boston Herald, uh, covered that story because a flag burning at a, a ceremony uh, com- uh, remembering the recently dead in 9-11, that got some attention. Uh, but it seems like not much has changed because just yesterday there was a banner uh, unveiled at Amherst College above the one dining hall, Valentine Hall. Um, and the banner said, uh, that in honor of those killed and displaced by America's so-called war on terror, and it also said that there is no flag large enough to cover the shame of killing innocent people, which people attribute as a quote to the historian Howard Zinn. So it's 9-11, and you have people on Amherst campus who are remembering what happened in uh, what happened on that day and there was uh, a young woman Morita Tam who was killed in one of the towers who had been a senior at Amherst when I was a freshman and she was one of three to whom the Amherst College community was paying tribute yesterday and these idiot students decided to hang a banner I should also note 
that the students, uh, or rather that the administrators on campus take the position that they took back in 2001, which is, while they think it's insensitive, they'll say that, quote, free speech enables all citizens of this country to express their opinions, even if their views are expressed in a manner that might offend, end quote. Okay, I agree. So on the issue of a mass casualty terrorist attack, it seems that the Amherst College administrators have an understanding of the First Amendment, that yes, in fact, it does include the right, the ability to offend. Do they apply that principle, however, to discussions on campus about affirmative action? Do they apply that principle that, quote, free speech enables all citizens of this country to express their opinions, end quote, when it comes to uh, racial set-asides in the admissions process, when it comes to housing on campus, that is also set aside for preferred racial groups? Do they allow for the discussion then? Oh no, my friends, I can assure you that they would, under the uh, rubric of hate crimes or hate speech, try to shut that down. So this is a perfect example of exactly, forget about the idiot students for a second, there'll always be dumb kids on college campuses whose parents are paying too much money for them to be not educated at all. But look at the administrators, look at the adults, the overpaid college bureaucrats and how they respond. When it comes to uh, offending the families of the dead from the Amherst community who were killed in 9-11, they just have to, they'll, they'll only talk about how it's insensitive. But if it came to a mean discussion about diversity, yeah, First Amendment doesn't apply anymore, does it? Tells us a lot. Welcome back, team. Buck Sexton here. I feel like it would be, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't at least give you some tips that I have come up with over the years of uh, doing radio, doing TV, and being in the midst of interviews, uh, hostile panel discussions, all kinds of stuff. Uh, some tips that I have found for for public speaking in in general. Um, one of the big ones is. Uh, <laughs> No surprise here. Know what, know what you're going to say beforehand. Uh, very few people can just pull it, uh, pull it out of thin air off the cuff. But you don't have to know every word. Just have a sense of where you're going to go. That also means have a sense of timing. Uh, you, you don't want to end up, those of you who are familiar with the movie Old School, having to get bailed out by your buddy Vince Vaughn. Right there, and it continues right here, because I think what my friend Mitch is trying to say is that true love is blind. So you want to know what you're going to say, and you want to know how long you're going to go. Shorter is better. Uh, That is something to always keep in mind. I have never once been in a social setting in particular where somebody was making a toast or giving a speech, and I thought, wow, that that was just too short. I have been in the situation many times where I've had to think to myself, well, that was quite long. I remember years ago being at a family member's wedding, and it was the rehearsal dinner for the wedding, and you had people standing up and giving toast, and it was very nice. But for whatever reason, it was a big rehearsal dinner, people started standing up to give toasts who were increasingly removed from the actual bride and groom. So you had people standing up who were saying things like, Look, you know, I'm not really much of a public speaker, but uh, I don't really know these two. But uh, I just want to say, uh, 
you know, I look back on my life and I got a lot of regrets. I mean, it was it was kind of like that. I mean, there was a lot of people that were giving speeches that maybe shouldn't have been given those speeches. Uh, another tip, and this is true for interviews. It's true. This is I'm now giving away. I'm giving away some of my secrets here. Some of the the Freedom Hut public speaking uh, tips to become well, whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, one thing is. Know the first line that you're going to say. That's the only thing that I recommend knowing word for word beforehand. So however you're going to start your speech, because I don't recommend reading. I see this at wedding after wedding. People read their speech. You want to go bullet points. Know what you're going to say beforehand for the first line, though. Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad to be here to be giving a toast for John and and uh, Sally. Right. That's I know it seems very straightforward, but if you know what your first line is and you focus on the delivery, you've already created a momentum in your head for everything else you're going to say. If you stand up and you go, uh, hello, everybody, uh, I'm here for and, you know, public speaking is one of the biggest fears that people have. I think some studies show it's like the most widely shared fear that people have. Know your first line. Practice your first line. Say it out loud for an important speech, an important toast, any of the above. Give yourself the ability to practice beforehand if you can. Now, that's not always possible, but if you have the opportunity, that doesn't mean sit there and read it to yourself. It doesn't mean it means stand up in front of a mirror and do it. Give the speech. Do it more than once. But no matter what, remember, shorter is better. Know what you're going to say before you start speaking, meaning know the major points, and have your first line cold. Your first line should be something that you could say in your sleep. You could say after 10 shots of tequila, you could get that first line out no matter what. Interviews, toasts, anything, you name it. For big speech in front of your whole class, first line, have it down. No guesses, don't deviate. No ifs, ands, or buts. All right, those are my thoughts on that one. Um, I want to ask you to please download the podcast, as always. Buck Sexton with America now on iTunes. And you can check out all of our latest gear at bucksexton.com slash store. We also post stories throughout the day on bucksexton.com. I've got a piece up on the Hill looking at whether we would, under any circumstances, consider using nuclear weapons against North Korea it's a philosophical international relations piece up on the hill.com that I would uh, recommend to you all. So please do check that out, too. It's also on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Thanks, as always, for hanging out. Until next time, team.